the reason why I call it candor and not truth is to me, candor implies here's what I see. Also, I'm interested in what you're seeing. And truth implies that there's some sort of objective truth here. And if you go into these conversations with the attitude that you're right and they're wrong, you're not going to have a conversation at all, right? Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesise what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today I'm talking to Kim Scott from her back garden in Silicon Valley. You can hear the birds tweeting in the background. Kim's the author of Radical Candor, a fantastic framework for giving difficult, impactful feedback in your life, in your workplace. It's a key tool in driving high-performing teams to get better. It's what unlocks the 1% improvement day after day, week after week. And so Kim and I talk today about why is it difficult, and we talk about how to be better at it, and where to start, And particularly where to start now that we're not face-to-face. And then we get some fantastic book recommendations from Kim. She's got some usual book recommendations, but she's also been rereading some fiction. And so she shares with us her fiction recommendations for the summer. A fantastic conversation with Kim. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure you will too. Hi, I'm Kim Scott, and I am the author of Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity, and I'm thrilled to be here speaking with you today. Kim, it's lovely to have you here. Um, so why, why did you write the book? I wrote Radical Candor because, for me, one of the things that was, was probably the biggest barrier to success was just struggling with telling people when they were screwing up. And also struggling to tell people when they were doing great things. So it's not just criticism. And also struggling to make sure that I was listening to feedback people were giving me. It all came to a head when I had started a software company. I was, I was living in New York City, and it was a venture-backed software company. And I came into work one day, and about 10 people had sent me the same article. And you always know you better read that article when 10 people send it to you in one day. And it was an article about how people would really rather have a boss who's really competent, but kind of an asshole, than one who's incompetent, but really nice. And I thought, are they sending me this because they think I'm an asshole or because they think I'm incompetent? (laughs) And which is worse? Like, surely these are not my two choices. And yet, I think we all are so locked in this dichotomy that we have to choose, it's a false dichotomy, that we have to choose between being good and kind people and being successful. And the fact of the matter is, you can be both successful and you can be good and great at the same time. Uh, and so, so for me, writing the book was really about putting 
giving words to instincts I had developed over the course of my management career. Because I guess what you're saying is that people, if you're successful, people will cut you some slack for some lack of polish around interpersonal skills or, you know, or brilliant, brilliant jerks get away with being brilliant jerks. I think it's maybe even a little bit more insidious than that. I think very often people think they have to be a jerk in order to be successful and they don't. I wanted to rid the world of that notion. I think that people... It is so instinctive to withhold, not to tell someone something because you think it might hurt their feelings. I think for most people, that's a deeply ingrained instinct. It's, it, and it comes from the time we learn to speak. And our parents say some version of, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. <laughs> and, and that's a deeply ingrained habit, I think, for most of us. And I think it's because out of the mouths of babes, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. And there's there's a friend of mine was telling me that they, they'd had a couple stay in their house. And this was sort of when their, I think their eldest was like three. And so they're all on the doorstep going, bye, bye, lovely to meet you. And the, the, the door closes and the child sort of went, yeah. Thank God they've gone. Right. <laughs> like says out loud what they were thinking. And, ah. and so, and I think that's where that comes from because like children just, there's no filter. So they just say the unvarnished truth and it makes people embarrassed. It is embarrassing. I, when I was, I was teaching a class at Apple called Managing at Apple. And I, I said that this is such a problem, this, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And now it's your job to say it. And my kids at the time were about two and I would come home and they would, I remember I was out with my daughter some, somewhere and so, somebody was smoking and she points at him and says, He's going to die of cancer. <laughs> you know, like, be hush. And I, sa- I found myself saying that, or if you don't have anything nice. And then I'm like, oh, okay, so how can I teach my children <laughs> to learn how to be kind and also give people the feedback they need? And, and also when people aren't necessarily soliciting their feedback, <laughs> how to hush. It's also feedback that's, that's going to benefit them. It, like if, if you're giving people feedback and saying, uh, I don't know, you're in, more, you're in my team and you should be better at this because it benefits me. Do you know what I mean? I'm more motivated to do that. But when, it's, when it benefits the other person and there's nothing, in, there's nothing for you except some grief or misery to actually give them the feedback, right? Then that's A, the most powerful probably because there's nothing in it for me, but also uh, it's just hard. It is hard. And I think another reason why it's hard and another reason why we say this to our children is because we all, in general, as human beings, we have a negativity bias because we, we're cautious. And I think when it comes to social interactions, our negativity bias is especially strong because for most of human evolution, if you were thrown out of the tribe, you were dead. And so if nine times out of 10, radical candor is going to work, and one time out of 10, it's going to get you in trouble. Our instinct is to optimize for that one time out of 10 instead of the nine times out of 10. So part of what I did in writing the book was to try to tell a bunch of stories that will help us remember that it, it is going to work the majority of the time. And also to give people some tools for how to deal with the radical candor train wrecks, which will happen. I'm not going to tell you that there's some perfect magical 
set of words which you can use and then nobody will ever get upset or offended or whatever. There's not. Sometimes you you will have a radical candor train wreck. <laughs> Don't let that put you off. Yes, but only only one time out of 10, you know, nine times out of 10, it'll be it'll strengthen your relationships and you'll do better work. So I'm thinking maybe I should back up and explain what I mean by radical. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, because it very often gets misunderstood. Uh, One of the things that is most painful for me is I'll be working with a team and I'll go into a meeting and somebody will storm into the room and say, in the spirit of radical candor, and then they'll proceed to act like a jerk. And that is not the spirit of radical candor. So what is the spirit of radical candor? Radical candor just means care personally and challenge directly at the same time. I'm not sure if you can hear it, but there's a bird. I can. There's a I bird can. scolding me. The bird, the bird <laughs> maybe disagrees. It's Twitter come to life. So you want to care personally at the same time that you challenge directly. And when you can do both at the same time, it's radical candor. Now, when you challenge directly, but you forget to show that you care personally, that is obnoxious aggression. So when that guy charged into the room and said, in the spirit of radical candor, that was actually the spirit of obnoxious aggression. He was he was not taking a moment to show he cared or to give any indication that he was saying what he was saying in service of that other person's growth. And very often, the, the vast majority of people, when they realize they've acted like a jerk, when they realize they've upset someone, ironically, instead of moving the right direction on the care personally dimension, we just back off our challenge directly, even though it was legitimate, our point. And we'll say, oh, I didn't really mean it, or it's no big deal. But it is a big deal. That's why we said it in the first place. And, and when you move the wrong direction on challenge directly, and you don't go up on care personally, you wind up in the worst place of all, which is what I call manipulative insincerity. And this is where passive aggressive behavior, backstabbing behavior, political behavior, all the kind of most toxic behaviors in the workplace get introduced. And it's fun to tell stories about obnoxious aggression and manipulative insincerity. When we complain about work, those are the two behaviors that we are usually complaining about. But in my experience, the vast majority of mistakes get made in this other quadrant where we do show that we care personally because most people, the vast majority of people are actually pretty nice people. They want to be nice anyway. So we do show that we care personally, but we fail to challenge directly, not because we're trying to hurt someone, but because we don't want to hurt their feelings. And that I call ruinous empathy because you're not telling someone something that they need to know, that they would be better off knowing in the long run. So one of the things that I recommend to people is think about, pause right now and think about that moment in your career when someone told you something that stung a bit at the time, but stood you in good stead for the next 10 years. And that is radical candor. Yes. Also, I think I see sometimes in a group setting, in a team setting, the uh, ruinous empathy, like somebody being, somebody's getting some some uh, radically candid feedback and and the team jump in and try and save them or they go that's not i'm sure that's not really what he meant and that was exactly what he or she meant right and and you know not helpful there either the team the team are struggling with some conflict yes the team the team struggles i mean very often also people tend to feel 
it's one of the reasons why radical candor is better delivered in private, not in public, uh, because I think it's especially if it's going to be delivered by the by the boss, it's much better in private because people tend to sort of want to treat their boss like a tyrant to be toppled. And if they see the boss criticizing someone in public, they're afraid that maybe it's going to be their turn next time. And so it feels like you're being a loyal colleague to defend that person from the boss. And so you, you don't, you want to just stay away from that dynamic if you're the leader and make sure you criticize it in private. I mean, you're also, when you criticize someone in public, you're kind of wasting your breath because for most people, public criticism kind of triggers the lizard brain and puts someone in fight, flight, or freeze mode. And literally they can't hear you when they're in that mode. So you're just wasting your breath. So you may as well do it in private when you can sort of take a minute to put some context, say, I want to tell you something because I really care. I know you care about this project. I care about your development. So where you can take a moment. And so that that there is sort of, that's a top tip on how to deliver radically candid feedback. Yes. The good news about radical candor is that it's really fast. The best radical candor I've ever gotten in my career has happened in these two-minute impromptu conversations. And it's free. I mean, you can check the book out from the library and read all about it, right? (laughs) So it's fast and it's free. The bad news about radical candor is that it takes enormous emotional discipline. It's really hard to get yourself in the moment to say it. And so one of the things that I really encourage people, it's about kind of fundamental behavior change. It's changing your habits of communication. And these are, as I said before, habits that have been deeply ingrained since we learned to speak. And our parents told us, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. So, and now it's your job to say it, you know, and that's hard. It's really hard to change these deeply ingrained habits. So one of the things that I suggest is to be very clear in your mind, what's the order of operations of radical candor? So the place to start is actually by soliciting it not by dishing it out, especially if you're a manager, but no matter who you are, you want to make sure that you understand how the other person is is experiencing you. So I have four bits of advice for how to solicit radical candor. And if you only listen and do one thing as a result of this podcast, do this first thing. Think about what's the question you're going to use to ask for feedback. And it can't be, do you have any feedback for me? Because I can already tell you what the answer to that is. Oh no, everything's fine. So you've got to think about a question that's not a yes or no question, but but how are you going to ask? And your question needs to do two things. It needs to show that you really want to hear the answer. And it needs to give some indication that you understand the person you're talking to, right? So it's about you, but it's also about them. And so one, one question that, that one of my coaches, Fred Kaufman, suggested that I use is, what could I do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me? So I like that question a lot. I was working, however, with Krista Quarles when she was the CEO of OpenTable, and she said, I could never imagine those words coming out of my mouth. The question I like to ask is, tell me why I'm smoking crack. Okay, that's fine. Uh, That's another way to ask the same thing. As long as you know the person you're talking to is not struggling with drug addiction or something like that. So (laughs) you need to make sure that you're 
that you're being empathetic. And in fact, my question, which a lot of people who've worked with me like, doesn't work for everyone. In fact, my co-founder is Jason Rosoff. And after we had been working together for about a month, he said, you know, I really hate that question. (laughs) He said, it's too open-ended. I never know what to say. You need to be more specific. So ask me for feedback about your performance in that meeting or something you're working on this week. So you got to adjust it for the person you're asking. So solicit, start by soliciting feedback. Well, even that, you know, but if you hadn't started somewhere, you wouldn't have, you, Jason wouldn't have said, I don't like that question. Right. So then it becomes, it becomes iterative. Yeah. No, it wasn't a total feedback fail because I did get something from that question. The answer was, you can stop asking me that question. I hate it. So, so that's order of operation. Number one is soliciting feedback. Next, you want to make sure you're focusing on the good stuff. Uh, Very often what happens with a lot of people say, you know, I'm, I have this some, I, I work with a lot of technical companies, and they often complain about technical debt. But then when I start talking about radical candor, they're like, not only do we have technical debt, we have feedback debt. Like we've built these relationships in which we've never said this stuff. And so we're now in a bad situation. How do we get out of it? And paradoxically, it's about giving voice to the things you appreciate. Because very, very often what happens with feedback is we don't say something, we don't say something, we don't say something. And then when we finally do say something, we're so frustrated, we explode. And and pretty soon that whatever that negative thing is that was bothering us that we never said is all we can see about the, fir- the person. In fact, there was one, one guy after I'd, I gave a radical candor talk he said, you know, I was married. I was married for five years and, and sort of almost as soon as, as we were married, I, it started bugging me that my wife clanked her spoon on her teeth when we ate cereal in the morning. And, you know, I didn't want to be kind of a jerk. I didn't, I didn't want to say anything. And finally, five years later, like she clicked her teeth on her spoon. I was like, I have to have a divorce. <laughs> I'm sure there was something else going on in the, in the relationship than just the spoon on the teeth. But sometimes when these little things, when we when we don't say anything, they they become much bigger than they actually are. And so you you want to make sure that you get back to remembering what it is that you appreciate about working with this person and give voice to it, if not to the person, to, to your colleagues or whatever. So that's praise. So step number two is make sure you're focusing on the good stuff. Now you're ready to offer some criticism. And again, it shouldn't feel like a root canal. If you're doing it right, if you're doing routine, radical candor maintenance, it's more like brushing and flossing. It's not a root canal. Two-minute conversation, best had sort of in the moment, but in private. So if you're in a meeting and somebody says or does something that, that strikes you as problematic, you want to talk to them right after the meeting, if at all possible. And you want to make sure that you're being humble. You could be wrong about what you're saying. You could be wrong about praise. You could be wrong about criticism. But the reason why I call it candor and not truth is, to me, candor implies, here's what I see, also I'm interested in what you're seeing. And truth implies that there's some sort of objective truth here. And if you go into these conversations with the attitude that you're right and they're wrong, you're not going to have a conversation at all, right? So so you want to be humble. You want to 
state your intention to be helpful. You want to have these conversations as quickly as possible, immediately, whenever possible. You want to be aware that there's a hierarchy of mediums. In the pre-COVID world, I would have said, have this conversation in person, but that's not possible right now. And in fact, we can talk later. I've learned a lot about giving giving this kind of feedback over video, but do it over video. Don't don't just do a phone call. Don't send it. Definitely don't send an email because something like 90%, 85% of communication is nonverbal. So you want to be able to see how the other person's facial expression, you want to see something about their body language. You want to hear the tenor in their voice. So much better to do it over video than uh, than over the phone, and better over the phone than over an email. And just don't don't do it over text. Don't break up over text. Don't give feedback over text. Don't do it in a tool. There's all these feedback tools. I think there's a big problem with them. The whole point of radical candor is take your phone, put it down, look the person in the eye, or look at the little green dot in your. Uh, camera and your computer and and talk, like have a real human conversation. Uh, so that's probably the most important thing. You you also want to, to, again, praise in public, criticize in private, and you don't want to offer feedback about fundamental personality attributes because it's very difficult to change our fundamental personality attributes. You want to give feedback about things that people can change. So the one of the ideas is you can give feedback sort of using the Center for Creative Leadership Situation Behavior Impact uh, model. So you want to describe the situation, describe the behavior or the work product, and describe the impact that, that it had. Uh, and that works. That's just as important for praise, by the way, as it is for criticism. That sort of, no, everybody, know, you can, you, what you can do is you can say how you feel. Yes. So, you know, you we we we're here you did this this is how it made me feel. And I guess what you're saying what you're doing is you're saying that what probably that probably wasn't your intention. I mean it might it might have been either way. I don't want to I don't want to feel like that whether it was your intention or not. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. My daughter gave me some feedback about this. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think when you think about the impact that you're describing, I think the more objective you can be, the better. So when you did this, it made it more difficult for us to work well together. So the, the reason is this, that bullying is a real thing. And sometimes you're going to have to give feedback to a bully, right? To someone that, in fact, very often that's part of a leader's job is to make sure that there are consequences for bullying so that it doesn't escalate. And so my daughter was getting bullied by this kid and I was suggesting she tell the bully some version of what you said. When you throw my lunch on the table, then I feel hurt. And she kind of smacked her fist on the table and she said, mom, he's trying to hurt my feelings. Telling him that he succeeded is like giving him a cookie. <laughs> I'm like, oh, you're right. So I think you don't want to make it necessarily all about how it makes you feel. You, you want to show the impact on collaboration, the impact on your ability to work together, that sort of thing. I was just, I'm thinking about the story that you tell about the feedback that you got from Sheryl Sandberg in the book, where she was, she was telling you that saying mm a lot 
made you seem dumber yes. than you might, but then you might otherwise be capable of appearing on your own. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll, let me tell the story because it, that makes it, it make Cheryl sound sort of mean and she was not being mean. She was being fundamentally kind, but she did. Say, well, the, that's the punchline. But basically I had to give this presentation to the founders and the CEO and the meeting went really well. And I thought I was a genius. And as I was walking out of the meeting, I passed Cheryl and I'm expecting, you know, a high five, a pat on the back. And instead she says, why don't you walk back to my office with me again, two minutes, like not adding extra time to her day or to my day to have this conversation, but it did take emotional discipline. And she starts out by telling me about the things that went well in the meeting, not in the shit sandwich sense of the word, but really seeming to telling me some stuff I didn't know. But of course, all I wanted to hear was what I had done wrong. And the first thing she said was, you said I'm a lot in there. Were you aware of it? And I kind of made, if, if that was all I had done wrong, who really cared from my from my point of view, and I kind of made this brush off gesture with my hand. And I said, yeah, I know it's a verbal tick. It's no big deal, really. And then she said, I know a great speech coach. I'm sure Google would pay for it. Would you like an introduction? So, you know, a little, she's moving out a little further on the challenge directly to mention. But once again, I make this brush off gesture with my hand. And I said, no, I don't have time for a speech coach. Didn't you hear about all these new customers I was talking about? You know, who wants to do that? I got to focus on the business. And then she stops. She looks right at me. And she says, I can see when you do that thing with your hand, I'm going to have to be a lot more direct with you. And so it puts me on notice, you know, which was useful because I knew it was going to, you know, I was going to hear it. And she said, when you say um, every third word, it makes you sound stupid. Uh, and that that word stupid is what got my attention. And cardinal sin at Google was being stupid. And so I really appreciated that she did, that was situation behavior impact, right? In the meeting, when you said um, every third word, it made you sound stupid. She didn't say I was stupid. There's a world of difference between pointing out to the behavior, pointing out the behavior and also pointing out the impact that the behavior had on, not, not on other people, but on me and their perception of me. Now that can be tricky. It can be tricky because, because sometimes the perception is one of bias, right? And that you don't want to reinforce or ask people to dance around. But in this case, it was easy for me to, I mean, it wasn't easy. It was hard. I had to go to see the speech coach and, and watch myself on video. I, I won't say it was easy, but it was it was doable for me to fix the um problem. Well, and you fixed it. I haven't heard you say um on any of the things I've seen you do. I do still occasionally say it, but it did help. And the other thing that helped, by the way, is giving the radical candor talk so many times. And as soon as you tell an um story... <laughs> You better not. You become hyper aware of the ums. So if you have if you have an um problem, tell a story about your um problem, and then that'll fix it. I think that's a it's a good example in the book because there's nothing in it for Cheryl. Oh, and as you say, as you say, there's there's some emotional discipline involved, but dead easy to just you know it's not my problem. What's it got to do with me? And not bring it and not bring it up. Yes, yes, that's the temptation. And there was a big thing in it for Cheryl because Cheryl was only going to be as successful as her team was. 
and by giving us the kind of feedback that made us more successful, made her more successful. So ultimately, ultimately, especially if you're a leader, uh, if you're somebody's boss, it is actually your your interests are aligned. Their success is your success. Yeah. What uh, what have you found about video and radical candor? Yes, it's a great question. Because I think I would think that as teams went completely remote and given that everybody finds difficult conversations difficult and given that what you're trying to do is you're trying to find two minutes, you know, walking back to my office or, you know, whilst we're, you know, going to go and grab lunch, that like timing's a problem and judging the other person's emotional state is also harder. Yes, it's, it is it is much, much harder. There's no doubt about it. There, so there are a few things that I suggested even when we were all in the same office together, and I think they're even more important now, but again, it takes discipline. So there, there are a lot of companies where you, meetings, and you can set this in your calendar automatically to happen. It's easy to, to implement. But instead of setting up one-hour meetings, you want to set up 50-minute meetings so that you automatically have a 10-minute buffer in between meetings. And instead of setting up 25, 30-minute meetings, you want to set up 25-minute meetings. And usually people do that because they had to walk in between. And now that we're on Zoom, we think, oh, we don't need that. But we need it. We still we still need to go to the bathroom, you know, even if we don't have to walk in between meetings. And so I think scheduling slack time in your calendar. And I also think this was true before COVID is even more true. Now you, you also, you don't want to schedule yourself back to back to back to back to back all day long. Nobody, nobody can deal with that very well. Um, So that's one thing I've learned. The other thing that I learned when we first went into quarantine, I found it very stressful because the kids were at home uh, and everybody has different stresses. Not everybody has young kids at home. But I found that I was probably 30% less productive because I was at home with my kids. Even though my husband, God bless him, was taking the lion's share of the work, still there was stuff that more stuff that had to be done. And so that was stressful. But when I took a step back and I looked at it, I realized I was getting probably a 60% parenting and spousal gain because I wasn't traveling. I was, we were all together all the time. And I realized that I just needed to celebrate this gain and accept the loss because the gain was bigger than the loss. And that really made me rethink some of the advice I was giving in Radical Candor because I was talking about how, how important it was to have these conversations in person but what I, what I hadn't factored in when I wrote Radical Candor was how much more important it is to be in person with your personal relationships. <laughs> like being in, per- being in person with, with my work colleagues was important, but being in person with my children, it's far more important. So I don't think I'll ever go back. I mean, I, I think I'll do a lot of my one-on-ones forever on video because not traveling, not not driving, not commuting has given me more time with my family and also more time with myself, more time to exercise, more time to sleep. And that allows me to do better work, actually. Uh, So we'll see. 
that you can judge the quality of my next book is called Just Work. So we'll see. You'll when you read it, you can decide if uh, <laughs> if the proof is in the pudding. And is that is that out soon? March sixteenth next year. So not soon enough. Uh, but it's with it's it's with the copy editor now, and so it is done more or less. Needs some some final eyes dotted, uh, and you can buy it on Amazon now. So please do. Pre orders matter. But anyway, so the point of all that long story is that I think that you you want to make sure that you are paying attention to what's important to you, what's most important to you. And sometimes the trade-off of being with your family or getting enough sleep, if that means you have to have the conversation over video, do it. Because you get, you get most of the way there over video uh, for these conversations. The other thing that I've learned, my co-founder and I talk about this, is that there are times when we're going to have a one-on-one and... We don't have any intense feedback for each other, so it doesn't need to be over video. But but we've both been for too long in front of the in front of our computers, and so then we'll have a phone call and we'll walk. We'll get outside. And we'll, so sometimes, like checking in with people and understanding what they need. I, I've, I coach several people, and they said now when we have our team meetings, instead of doing a stand up in front of our computers, we all agree that we're going to talk on the phone and walk. Uh, separately, because we're in in lockdown, at least in the U.S., but people in global companies, the Americans are very discouraged because the rest of the world seems to have gotten this under control better than we have here. But it really matters focusing on people's physical needs to like get outside and get some sunshine, get stretch their legs. So, so I think that the the idea that having these conversations in person. Uh, means that we have to be locked in conferences or locked behind our screens is wrong. We, we need to sort of reassess and, and prioritize our needs, our personal needs. Two thoughts occur to me. One is, do you think there's sort of a global gradient for radical ease with which people do radical candor? So here I am in the UK and I look east and most of the Dutch people I know are fairly straight talking and in the past, I've had colleagues from Bulgaria and Poland, and they have been incapable of anything else other than sort of black and white conversations uh, in many cases. And then I look west. I've got my own, you know, my own nation where, you know, people are often just terribly nice. And, you know, I spend a lot of time working with um, with colleagues in North America. And is there a, do you think there's a global difference in terms of people's innate ability to be radically candid? So I have I have a, a serious answer to that question, and then I have a flip answer to the question. So the serious answer is that radical candor is culturally relative. I think it's hard for everyone everywhere in the in the world, but it's hard in different ways. So if if you think about radical candor and and you abstract up, it's really about love and truth at the same time. And there's not a culture in the world that doesn't value love and truth, with the exception of perhaps 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue but uh, in Washington, D.C. But love and truth for most human beings are really important core values. And, uh, and in, in all cultures around the world, love and truth are really important core values. But they get expressed differently. So, for example... I was managing teams in California and a team in in Japan and a team in Israel. 
And radical candor sounded very different in all those places. In fact, with the team in Japan, I called it polite persistence because polite was how they thought about, about showing that they cared personally and persistence was an easier way for them to think about challenge directly. And once they, once they sort of thought about it in those terms, they were relentless. I mean, they were incredible, this team. The team in Israel, if I had called it polite persistence, would have, there would have just been a rejection of it. Not, not because Israelis are rude, but because they often experience politeness as falseness, right? And so, so you want to make sure that you're adjusting the way that you're speaking for the culture where you are. And, and you also want to make sure you're adjusting the way that you're speaking for the person who you're speaking to. So for example, if you're talking to me, you need to attend more to the challenge directly dimension of radical candor because I'm not the best listener. But if you're talking to my sister, who's a wonderful listener and maybe a little bit more sensitive than I am, you need to really attend to the care personally dimension of radical candor. So you need to adjust. The flip answer to your question is that there is something strange that happens as you move west, things become more ruinously empathetic. <laughs> it's true. It's really weird, uh, uh, no matter where you are. I mean, I guess at some point it reverses itself since the world is a circle. But when I was, I was living in New York and I moved to California and somebody sent me a cartoon. And in New York, the person was saying, F you and thinking, have a nice day. And in California, the person was saying, have a nice day, but thinking, F you. <laughs> and I was like, gosh, I better be careful here in California. Oh, very good. And one other thing which uh, I was thinking about is I suspect that in companies where they were pre, pre everyone being remote, they weren't very good at radical candor. Or they were thinking this is a thing that we're gonna we must get better at. Everybody being remote probably made it harder or stalled it for them. Yes. If people are thinking, right, I can't kick this down the road because maybe we're gonna be remote until, you know, next year now. And and there's some feedback I need to you know, I don't want to be in a position where I'm listening to the spoon clatter on a on a cereal for three years and it and it's making my head explode. How do people where do people start? Do you start just by giving praise and then, you know, it's sort of you build up to, well, communication has at least been established or? You start by soliciting feedback on yourself. And no matter what the person says, even if it's not some sort of fundamental revelation, reward the candor. Drag it out of them. So we talked earlier about your go-to question. Ask the question, then you've got to embrace the discomfort. So make sure it's tempting when you ask somebody this question, it's tempting to start to answer it for them because you put someone in an awkward situation when you say, what could I do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me. And so it's tempting to sort of try to make them feel comfortable. You can't. It's, this is inherently an uncomfortable situation. So just shut your mouth and count to six. I only made it to three there, and I can tell you're about to say something because it made you uncomfortable, right? <laughs> well, silence is lovely. I mean, it just that, you know, yeah. asking people a question and then shutting up. 
It's really hard, though. It's, in fact, that was the reason why I said um all the time, because I was uncomfortable with silence. I had to learn to count to six. So it'll help you in a lot of different ways, learning to count to six. So ask your question, count to six. And then most people can't endure six seconds of silence. So they'll tell you something. Now, the third thing you need to do is you need to make sure that you are uh, listening with the intent to understand, not to respond. Because even though you just asked for some feedback, when you get it, you're likely to feel defensive. You're likely to feel defensive. And sometimes if the feedback is around an issue, you might even feel ashamed. I think one of the things that is happening more and more is that people are getting feedback that they've said or done something that is racist or sexist. And when you get like, forget about the saying, um, that's easy. But like when you get that kind of feedback, it is really tempting to deny it, to go into denial. And it's so important to learn how to accept the feedback. You don't have to agree with it, but you do have to listen with the intent to understand, not to respond, not to get defensive. Uh, a simple example of this is my daughter recently gave me some feedback at breakfast. And she said to me, Mom, I wish you weren't the radical candor lady. And immediately, this like wave of parental guilt washed over me. And I thought, oh, I'm working too hard. I'm not spending enough time with her. I thought I knew exactly what she meant. And then I thought, well, before I give in to this parental shame and guilt, I, sh I should ask her what she really meant, because maybe she meant something different. So I said, well, who do you think, who do you wish I were? And she said, I wish you were the lady who minded her own business. <laughs> it was a totally difference. Totally different. I could, I could go stay up in the office a little longer as far as she was concerned. So you want to make sure that you listen with the intent to understand and that you don't allow your feelings of, which is natural, your feelings of defensiveness or shame when you hear the feedback to overwhelm your ability to try to understand it. Um, and then last but not least, you've got to reward the candor and you've got to reward it richly because other people, we talked earlier about the negativity bias, other people really take a risk when they give you feedback. And if you don't reward the risk, they won't do it again. I mean, we all, it's, it's like money, you know, we don't put money in risky investments unless they pay off. So, so we don't put our emotional capital uh, into into risky statements unless it unless it pays off. So you want to make sure that that there's a payoff so that people will keep giving you feedback. So that's the most important thing is start by soliciting it. Uh, and then again, give voice to what you appreciate, especially now when you're not in the same place. And one of the things that I recommend is if you used to have one-on-ones with your direct reports once a week for 50 minutes or something, do three 15-minute one-on-ones. Talk to people more often in these times because a lot is changing for them. And what happened on Friday is not going to be relevant two days later. What happens on Monday is forgotten by Friday. It's, time has this new weird, new weird sense. So we need to talk to each other more often and make sure you give voice to the, to the good stuff. And then remember that story about the guy with the spoon and the teeth, like give voice to the bad stuff while it's still small. Because if, if you ignore small stuff, it becomes big stuff over time. Well, the thing is, it the thing itself, it's funny, isn't it? The thing itself doesn't change at all. It's just its 
it's how big it is for you. Yes. And the other person never gets a chance to change because you never got around to telling them that this small thing was bugging you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember we, we had a, we instituted a sort of staff survey years ago and this guy came bottom, you know, and it, the feedback was because he never answered the phone. And so I said to him, I said, Dave, look, we've done this feedback and you're bottom. Nobody else knows your bottom except me, but I'm telling you, you know, of all the, t- you, you scored the lowest score in the team. And it's because you, when the phone rings, you're busy doing something else. Right. And so then, so the next quarter he was employee of the quarter and people complained that they never got to speak to customers because David always answered the phone. And it, and it, so, you know, in so many other companies, nobody would ever have told him that this was bugging them and he would never have got the chance to fix it. And the great thing about that story is that he overcorrected. When you get feedback like that, you you need to overcorrect. Otherwise, nobody will notice that you've made a change. And and that was that was some other advice that Cheryl gave me. She said, when you get feedback, don't try to get to the middle. Try to overcorrect, and then then you'll know you've succeeded. Very good. What is it you now know, Kim, that you wish you'd known sometime earlier? There's just like one of those things that. I've had to learn and relearn and relearn. But this realization that I had during COVID that I got a 60% parenting gain, but a 30% productivity loss, and that was a good trade-off for me. And I think for everybody, like in the end, it actually helped my productivity that I was better rested and happier uh, and and felt better about the time, the way I was spending my time. So I think I think that when I... I wish that I had, when I said in-person communication is so important, I wish that I had added, and it's more important for some relationships than others. And, and it's more in-person communication is more important in your personal life than it is in your work life. And if you have to trade off in-person with your kids and do it over video with your colleagues, do that. Do that because the video works okay. All day long. Brilliant. What books have you read along the way that have had an impact on on you that you think other people should pick up? It's ironic. I don't read that many business books. <laughs> um, what I mostly read is novels. And because I think... Fiction or nonfiction? Fiction, novels. Like Yeah. No, no, that's what I mean. You, you can recommend some fiction books. That's absolutely fine. Fiction. Uh, and the reason why I think novels are so important is that such a big part of management is having empathy for other people. And reading a novel really helps you build empathy for other people. So I love George Eliot, uh, Middlemarch. I recommend everybody should read Middlemarch. Uh, I love Virginia Woolf. Uh, read Orlando. My God, I just reread that book. That is a brilliant book. Um, Mrs. Dalloway is wonderful. I love Robertson Davies, a Canadian, Canadian writer. Uh, who the Deptford trilogy, like one of the, and these are great books to read in these times as well, because they will, they will take you away to a different place. So I think read novels. There are some management books that I think are fantastic though. Csikszentmihalyi wrote a book called Flow, which I really like. Carol Dweck wrote a book called uh, Mindset. That's a book that was recommended to me by the guy who headed up the iOS team at Apple and my kids' uh, nursery school (laughs) teacher on the same day. Like there aren't many books like that. It will help you in all aspects of your life. 
Uh, it's a great, great, great book. I love Bob Sutton's The No Asshole Rule and the, ask, the follow-up, The Asshole Survival Guide. Really great, uh, great books. Uh, Amy Edmondson's book, uh, The Fearless Organization, is provide, it's interesting. It provides kind of radical candor is more based on my personal experiences, and Amy Edmondson has, has a lot of the, uh, the, the data. She did the research. <laughs> yeah, like why it really <laughs> works behind, in real life. Yeah. my personal anecdotes, yeah. Uh, so, so fantastic book. Brilliant. Kim, that's been absolutely brilliant. It's been uh, lovely to talk to you today. Thanks for coming on. Great talking to you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. And there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me. Share your questions and comments and, and perhaps even recommend a guest a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.